This morning, I have brought along a little something to show you. It's a rather small, intimate, personal item that I wear in bed almost every single night. But don't worry, I'm not about to show you what I wear from the neck down. I'll leave that to your imagination. Because this is something I wear on my head. Isn't that nice? You see, this is the hat that I wear on my head. It's what I call my bedtime hat. Or more accurately, it's made by a company called Acoustic Sheep, and it's known as Sleep Phones. It's basically a pair of headphones on either side and a little battery pack in the back. And I think you'll agree with Zoe that they're not exactly attractive, especially by morning when they slip <laughs> over my face and I kind of look like that. But while she is not a fan, I have to put these on almost every night, even when I'm not jet-lagged or in some crazy time zone. Because when the lights go out and there's nothing to distract me, my mind starts to whirl, filling with my worst worries, my deepest fears, and all kinds of unwelcome thoughts that keep me awake, that stop me from sleeping. And so that's when I press a little button back here, and I turn on my bedtime hat, and I listen via Bluetooth to a sleep story. See, every night I choose a different non-fiction story recorded in a single voice, talking slowly and gently, designed deliberately not to be too exciting. Each one continues to slow soporifically for around 20 minutes, kind of like this morning's sermon. <laughs> and so be careful, because I have never made it to the end of one without falling blissfully asleep. But my hat and these stories provide a distraction. It's very loud now, I've taken that off. From that sense of panic and powerlessness that the darkness brings, when there's nothing more for us to do, then our fears become amplified, our doubts are let loose, our minds easily overwhelmed by worry. And in our reading this morning, we find someone whose thoughts are similarly racing, an important Pharisee who, from far from feeling snoozy, settled and satisfied by decades of religious observance, has been tossing and turning, unable to find rest, but without a bedtime hat. He's forced to go in the middle of the night to meet Jesus for himself, desperately seeking not just slumber, but reassurance about who this new teacher is. So this morning, let's listen together with Nicodemus to that sleep story that he heard that night. Because it's not just the greatest bedtime story ever told, but the only story that can grant each one of us genuine hope and perfect peace by day and ultimate rest and reassurance by night. Now, I should note that right from the start, John makes it absolutely clear that Nicodemus has already recognized Jesus in verse 2. He, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So with his first words then, Nicodemus shows Jesus not merely respect 
but recognition. He knows he is no ordinary teacher because of all he has seen and heard. There's simply no other possible explanation. This rabbi must have come from God. Indeed, Nicodemus declares, not just I know, but we know. So while he may have been the only member of the Sanhedrin brave, curious, or restless enough to make that midnight journey, make no mistake, all those in power who resisted and ultimately condemned Jesus, the very men who pursued, persecuted, and ultimately crucified Christ on the cross, were in no doubt. They all knew exactly who he was. Nicodemus, John has already reminded us in verse 1, was a Pharisee, a title which literally means separated one. And each and every Pharisee had publicly committed themselves in front of three independent witnesses to living set apart from everyday life in order to dedicate themselves to perfectly keeping every minute detail of Jewish law. For the Pharisees were waiting for the coming kingdom of God, when God would reign on earth and bring about a new era of peace, justice, and righteousness. But they believed that this kingdom could only be established through their absolute observance of the law and through them enforcing righteous behavior amongst all of God's people. And so, Knowing as a Pharisee, Nicodemus has dedicated his whole life to seeking the kingdom, Jesus replies to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That line then is both Nicodemus's worst nightmare and our sermon in a sentence this morning. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. For in just these few words, Jesus tells Nicodemus that everything he has sought, everything that he has taught, everything he has done throughout his long life of privilege, sacrifice, and service has been for nothing unless he is willing and able to simply let go, start again, be born again, for there, the kingdom is readily at hand. And Jesus says there is no other way unless we're born again. No one, not even the mighty Nicodemus, can see the kingdom. And if anybody deserved to reach God's kingdom through religion, then Nicodemus surely would have been the first person in line. Just as Paul wrote in Philippians 3, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But what had kept Nicodemus up that night was that he could find no way of reconciling the liberating truth of who this rabbi clearly was, this man sent by God, with all that religious legalism he had dedicated his entire life to. But courtesy of one sleepless night, Jesus offered Nicodemus a satisfaction and a grace 
that a lifetime studying, teaching and enforcing the law, living under the law, had not delivered and could never provide. The kingdom of God, simply and freely, by the grace of God. As Paul concludes in Philippians 3, speaking about his own self-righteousness, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Little wonder then that Nicodemus begs Jesus to clarify, hoping against hope that his life has not been in vain, his works not considered a loss. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they are old? And again in verse 9, how can this be? Nicodemus is not being slow to catch on, but he is still hoping that Jesus can show him how, show him something, something else, something more he must do, one more small thing the Pharisees have missed all these years, something else that will enable them to finally make the grade and receive what is surely their just reward. Have you noticed, for people like the Pharisees, the question they always ask is how? When for Jesus, the only answer he ever gives is who? The kingdom comes not through deeper wisdom, greater obedience, harder work, or perfect righteousness, but only by the light, truth, and hope of who Jesus is, and the sacrifice of what Jesus has already done for each one of us. Nothing in the law that he had meticulously studied or the rituals he had religiously observed. His whole life had prepared Nicodemus for this moment of revelation that instead of resting and relying on his own accomplish accomplishments, he must be born again. Or more specifically and literally, the word actually means uh, born from above. Born again or born from above. To belong to the heavenly kingdom that Nicodemus has sought his whole earthly life, he must be born from above, born from the spirit into that new spiritual life, into the kingdom. Physical rebirth, re-entering our mother's womb, Jesus agrees with Nicodemus, is as utterly daft and entirely impossible as the notion of spiritual regeneration through religious purity and piety. What has been born as flesh is limited to always be flesh. To be born again, to be born of the spirit, we must be born from above. To see the kingdom, to be filled with the spirit requires more then than just hard work. It means to be born of the spirit. Echoing God's promises made to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 onwards. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put, in, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Notice Ezekiel does not say that by righteousness and carefully keeping the laws, we can earn a new heart. But God, speaking in the first person, has declared, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. This is the freely offered spiritual new birth then, 
that Jesus offered Nicodemus that night and offers you and I this morning. 1 Peter 3 verse 21 reads, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This man who has kept hundreds of laws impeccably day after day after day for decades has struggled to accept Jesus' revelation. But this is not the end of the story because we'll see Nicodemus again. He'll defend Jesus before the Sanhedrin in John chapter 7 and then we'll find him assisting Joseph of Arimathea in laying Jesus' body in the tomb in John chapter 19. But his fellow Pharisees will never reconcile freely and fully how Jesus offers them the kingdom that they have dedicated their whole lives to pursuing in their own strength. But remember, they all knew exactly who Jesus was. But they remain caught in a trap of legalism of their own making that will ultimately cost Jesus his life and them the opportunity to see the very kingdom that they have spent their entire lives striving and seeking. And by narrowing that way, the Pharisees have bound up not just themselves, but the nation that they have been entrusted to teach and to lead, causing Jesus ultimately to condemn them in Matthew 23, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. For no one can transform flesh into spirit by sheer hard work, any more than any one of us can convert lead into gold through any amount of blood, sweat, or tears. For that which is born of the flesh is always flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and nothing more. Instead, this new rabbi, this new shepherd of God's people who has come from God, declares being right with God only comes through radical acceptance of God's freely offered gift of grace. For by grace have we been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now, if I'm honest, my greatest fear at night is not the darkness or the silence or looking stupid in my hat, but the powerlessness, the helplessness of no longer feeling in control. Because by day, I am a master of action and distraction. I keep so busy that I forget to eat, I forget to drink, and I make myself sick. But to quote John Butler, if the enemy can keep your schedule full, then he can keep your spirit empty. But when the lights go out and I toss and turn and I struggle to sleep because I know that for the next eight hours there is nothing more that I can do. So I put on my bedtime hat and I let those stories distract me from all such thoughts until the sun rises and along with it my perception that I am back in control. But Jesus told Nicodemus that night we are no more in control of our salvation than we understand or control the wind. Yet, caught in the same trap as the Pharisees, we can risk spending our whole lives 
trying to do everything in our own strength. You see, we all prefer to be in control of our destiny rather than leaving it to someone else. And the honest truth is that every night I'm not so very different from Nicodemus. For what it is that's keeping me awake is that fear that for the next eight hours I am not entirely in control. In fact, for the next eight hours, there's nothing more that I can do. Whether you're here in church or there at home, let's celebrate together the good news of the gospel, the life-changing and the kingdom-revealing news that Jesus shared with Nicodemus that night. That instead of tossing and turning tonight, I can rest peacefully. You can sleep soundly, precisely because day or night, there is no more that we can do. What better news could there be than there is absolutely nothing left for any of us to do? Jesus has done everything for us already, once and for all, on the cross. This is not just the ultimate sleep story, but the only salvation story. And so this Lent, may that simple truth, that ultimate hope, release you from the trap of sin, the grip of doubt, the grasp of fear, and the slavery of legalism. We can surrender control without fear and submit to rest with confidence because our hope has already been gifted freely, fully, and finally from above. Our victory over doubt and death is assured by the truth of the only sleep story any of us will ever need. It's a story that Jesus told a restless Pharisee more than 2,000 years ago. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. May you sleep peacefully every single night and live joyfully every day in the sure and certain knowledge that by the grace of God there is nothing left to do, nothing left to earn, and nothing left to fear. Because born from above in Christ, there is nothing left to be accomplished. Amen.